Hello? Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, man. I'm glad Pastor Dan never has these problems. Whew. This is stressful. <laughs> All right. So, if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 14, 22 to 32. And if you would stand with me. Matthew 14, starting with a verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Why, he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when, every, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. When the, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Thank you. You can be seated. <clears throat> President Theodore Roosevelt once said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles, or, were the deer of de or whether the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, who at best knows in the end triumph of great achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while, while daring greatness, so that his place will never be with those cold, timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Before Jonas Salk developed a vaccine for polio that finally worked, he had 200 unsuccessful attempts. And someone asked him, how did it, fe how did it feel to fail 200 times? And Salk said, I have never failed anything in my life. I've only discovered 200 ways on how not to vaccinate for polio. See, failure is not a person. Failure is an event. Failure may have distracted you, but you don't have to let it define you. See, there are two categories of people in the story that we just read. There are those who, because of fear, did nothing and then there are those who, because of faith, did something. Many would look at the story that we just read as a story of Peter's failure. After all, once he began to walk on water, he did begin to sink. However, this story is one of the greatest stories of success that's found in the entire Bible. 
it marks not only a life that took a risk, but a life that was completely obedient to the will of God and to the word of God. See, there are two types of crowds that are in this story. There's the boat crowd, and then there's the believing crowd. There are those who talk the talk, and then there are those who walk the walk. Which crowd are you in? Who's in your boat? Let there be no doubt in your mind. This was much more than just an afternoon shower or just a mild thunderstorm. I believe the text paints a vivid picture as to the violent, angry condition of the storm. We look again back at verse 22 and 23. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent away the multitudes. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Why did Jesus go up on the mountainside or on these hills to go pray? It is to teach us that solitude and seclusion are good when we are to pray to God. See, with this, view, with this in view, we can see that we find Jesus continually withdrawing into the wilderness. And there he often spends the whole night in prayer. This teaches us earnestly to seek such quietness in our prayers as a time and place may afford. For the wilderness is the mother of silence. It is a calm and a harbor, delivering us from all turmoils. But in verse 22, there is an interesting piece to this whole puzzle. Jesus put his disciples into a ship that he knew was going to run directly into a storm. And some translations use the word constrained. And the word constrained literally means to compel, beg, or plead. In other words, Jesus begged his disciples to get into the boat. And he did so with the, with the full knowledge that a storm was brewing on the horizon. What's even more interesting about the locality of the storm is that the fact that this storm took place on the heels of a major miracle in the life of Jesus, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately after this great victory, a storm was on the way. Jesus, with the full knowledge of the storm, placed his disciples, or pleaded with his disciples to get into his ship, headed directly toward the storm. It reminds us that there are those times when God allows us to enjoy a great victory in our lives. However, many times, right on the heels of great victory comes a grievous vice. We may be on the mountaintop, but before long, we have to come back down into the valley. And it's there where we once again encounter the storms of life. We want to believe that since Jesus puts his disciples into a ship, knowing that a storm was coming, could not even have been that bad of a, of a storm. Surely Jesus wouldn't send his disciples directly 
into a storm. However, the text reveals the contrary. If we look again at verse 24, it says, The boat was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The disciples are tossed on the waves again. They are in a storm, fully as bad as the previous one. Gently and by degrees, he excites and urges the disciples on toward greater responsiveness, even to the point of bearing all things nobly. Whereas in a previous storm that the disciples were in, they had, they had Jesus in the ship with them. But now in this story, they were alone, by themselves. Even when he was asleep in the boat in the previous story, he was ready to give them relief from danger. But then he was present to them. And now he is leading them into a greater degree of a challenge. Now, in this story, he's not even present. He has departed. In mid-sea, he permits a storm to arise. And this was all for their training. See, the word tossed literally means to torment or strain. And in Mark 6, 48, we read Mark's account. The disciples were toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. In other words, the forceful windfolds were beating so violently against the ship that the disciples were having trouble keeping the ship on course. The ship was bobbing up and down on the raging waves like a loose piece of garbage. It was a storm of great intensity. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a pass that gets us out of the class called the storms of life. The Bible never promises a life free from suffering, sickness, sorrow, or storms. In fact, many times, like the disciples, the Lord Jesus and his sovereign, infinite wisdom sends us directly into the midst of a storm. And I have learned that there are two types of storms. There are storms of correction. God seeks to bring us back to him. There's storms of perfection. God seeks to make us more like him. Now rest assured, behind every storm we can find the weather forecast of God's plan, purpose, and program for our lives. The story unfolds the anxiety and fear of the disciples. Before we get too spiritual, I believe that it's safe to say that if we were in the disciples' shoes, we, have been, we would have been prone to be anxious as well. And it kind of reminds me of a, of a story of a U.S. air flight that had just taken off from the great Pittsburgh International Airport. The pilot came on the loudspeaker and said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to U.S. Air Flight 37. We will be cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet and should arrive in Chicago at, oh no, and the PA went dead silent. A couple minutes later, the pilot came back on and said, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but while I was, I was talking to you, I spilled a cup of co hot coffee on my lap. You should see the front of my pants. A man and coach yelled back, yeah, and you ought to see the back of mine.
There were two categories of people included in this anxious crowd. There were the cowardice majority, and then there was the courageous minority. We're going to talk a little bit about the cowardice majority first. There were 12 people, or 12 disciples, in the ship, and all of them were filled with fear, anxiety, and cowardice. We look at verses 25 and 27. It says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. The water is calm, the sun is bright, and the air is still. And suddenly the waves are crashing in. The wind is, is at a gale force. It's three o'clock in the morning, and they thought they saw a ghost. See, the word spirit or ghost in verse 26 is the Greek word phantasma. It speaks of a shiny, invisible image that suddenly becomes visible. The word describes a spectra or a ghost. In other words, when they saw Jesus, they first didn't recognize him. Their first inclination, given the current weather conditions, was that it was a spirit or a ghost. The storm had dimmed, distorted, and disfigured their vision of the Lord Jesus. And as a result, they are scared to death. I'm thinking about a young man who is trying to prepare for a conversation with a very intimidating person. He was talking about it with his wife and said, you know, when I think about this, my palms get sweaty. And about an hour later, he said, you know, when I think about doing this, my mouth gets dry. His wife said, then why don't you lick your palms? The fear of the disciples had plagued them, perplexed them, and paralyzed them. Then there was the courageous minority. The courageous minority involved one person. It was Peter. He had the courage, even in the midst of the most awful storm he had ever faced, to get out of the boat and walk to Jesus. I believe it's clear that initially Peter was once of the cowardice majority. I believe that he was too, was filled with, with fear. But unlike other disciples, he never allowed his fear to paralyze or cripple him. Jesus said to them in verse 27, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And then Peter makes a request in verse 28. It says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. We read that in verse 29. It says that Peter was come down out of the ship. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. And sometimes we often like to, to jump to verse 30 and jump on the bandwagon of criticizing Peter because in verse 30 it says, When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried. While it is true that Peter should have never looked at the wind of circumstance, I want to remind you that he was the only one 
who got out of the boat. The cowardice majority stayed in the boat where things are comfortable and certain, but the courageous minority got out of the boat where things are uncomfortable and uncertain. I can only imagine what the boat crowd must have been saying. Perhaps they said, Peter, what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you know that it's raining outside? Don't you have enough sense to know that you can't walk on water? Perhaps they said, wait a minute, Peter. We never officially went into conference and voted on this matter. I remind you that if you ever decide to do something for God, you will be surrounded by a boat crowd of Christians. They have no desire to get out of the boat. They only want to talk about those who do get out of the boat. They have no intention or, or interest in doing anything for God except for criticizing those who are serving God. The boat crowd says, says things like, we've never done it that way before. Or what if things don't work out like you thought they would? Or it's too expensive. We can't afford it. Or I don't know about all this shouting Things could get out of hand, and someone might think that we're charismaniacs. And sometimes I hear the boat crowd all the time. They sing things like, oh, the service can be too long sometimes. The music is too loud, or the crowd is too large. I hear them saying things like, I would come to church, but I've got to cut the grass. I've got to cook, spend time with my family. I would get involved, but I'm just too busy. When things slow down and it's more convenient, I'll do it. But I remind you that it's never convenient to serve God. There will always be something that hinders us from serving God. If, we're, if we let it and if we're looking for it. The boat crowd is the Christians who are all talk but no walk. Someone once said that there were three classes of people. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and then those who don't know what happened. The boat crowd watches what happens and then doesn't know what just happened. But the water walkers are those who make things happen. So who's in your boat? It's no coincidence that the number one selling chair in America is not the work our boy or the risk our boy, but the lazy boy. The boat crowd is the lazy boy crowd. They are the boat potatoes. They have found their spiritual comfort zone and nothing or no one is going to move them off of their seat and God forbid if you ever take their seat. But if like Peter, you're ever going to walk on water and do something for God, you have to get out of the boat. Let the boat crowd talk because that's what they'll ever do. 
the only way the boat crowd won't talk about you is if you do nothing. Have nothing and say nothing. Otherwise, if you decide to serve God, you will hear criticism and complaining. But go ahead and get out of the boat anyway. When you get out of the boat, and even if you begin to sink, you'll find Jesus ready, willing and able to help you. And as a song says, standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. Jesus appears walking on the water in the midst of a horrific storm. And just like the other disciples, Peter was immediately fearful. However, it seems that Peter's faith rises up within him and seeks confirmation as to the identity of the Lord Jesus. We look at verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And then Jesus offers one word in verse 29. Come. And that's all Peter needed. That's the only word that Peter wanted to hear. Once he is certain that Jesus is there, he steps out of the boat and begins to walk toward him. When Jesus said, come, Peter was no longer walking on water. He was walking on the word. And it's interesting to consider that Peter did not ask Jesus for a promise, but a command. He didn't say, Lord, if it is you, promise me that I won't sink. He said, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you. He never asked for a guarantee from sinking, but he asked for an opportunity for walking. Once Peter gets his marching orders, he steps out of the boat on his way to Jesus. If God has called you to do something, what else are you waiting for? Get out of the boat. If God has placed a burden in your heart for a specific ministry, what else are you waiting for? Step out of the boat. Peter steps out of the boat and made the tragic mistake of taking his eyes off of Jesus. And we look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. Every time you step out of the boat to do something for God, the devil will always make sure the winds of circumstances will be blowing. And these winds have one purpose, to take your eyes off of Jesus. Suddenly, in, in his despair, he pr prays one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. We look at verse 30. It says, Lord, save me. 31 to 32. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they came into the ship, the wind had ceased. Did you see that? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter. I believe it would stand 
to reason that if Peter had not gotten out of the boat, not only would he have never done anything for Jesus, but God would never have the opportunity to manifest his glory and power in the storm. You see, Jesus was not in the boat. He was on the water. The only way for Jesus to get to Peter was for Peter to go to Jesus. And the only way for Peter to get to Jesus was to get out of the boat. Yes, Peter sank, but Jesus saved him. Therefore, the failure of the story wasn't Peter, but it was the other 11 disciples who stayed in the boat. Because Peter was willing to take a chance to get out of the boat. He witnessed firsthand the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Some of the greatest victories come after times of sinking and defeat. You may never know the mighty power of God unless you are willing to get out of the boat. You may begin to sink and you may begin to stumble, but it is then that you will experience the grace, love, and mercy of the Lord Jesus. And you will have the opportunity to manifest his glory and power in your life. During the awful, bloody days of World War I, there was a British soldier who became so distraught with the war, the suffering and the death that he deserted. He tried to find his way back to the coast so he could catch a boat and make his way back secretly to his homeland in England. In the darkness of the light of the night, he lost his way. After a while, he stumbled upon a road sign. It was pitch black, and he was terribly lost. He had no idea where he was or what the sign said, so he decided to climb the pole to see if he could read the sign and figure out which way he needed to go. When he got to the crossbeam, he held on to read the sign. Taking out a match, he lit it and, look, and looked directly in the face of Jesus Christ. He had climbed an outdoor crucifix. Stunned by what he, he saw, he realized that the shame of his life, he was looking into the face of the one who endured it all and had, who had never turned back. The next morning, the soldier was back in the trenches. There was a doctor one time who said, no man ever succeeds in life who does not learn to finish every job he undertakes. Finish the job, finish the job. Don't shine one shoe and leave the other one unshined. Don't wash one ear and leave the other one dirty. Don't pull out the eyebrows over one eye and not pull them out over the other eye. If you're going to act the fool, go the whole hog. Finish the job. Finish the job. We look at verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Do you see how by degrees Jesus was leading them all higher and higher? For by his walking in the water and by his commanding another to do so, and by saving Peter while in trouble, their faith was greater. 
And during the same time he rebuked the sea, they worshiped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, did Jesus refuse to accept their confession? Of course not. He rather confirmed what they had said, and with even greater authority, healed who approached them. And as I invite the praise man to come back up, I want to leave you with, with this thought. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to know that God has given everything we ever need to do something great for him? Yet we never even get out of the boat. The choice is yours. The fearful will stay in, and the faithful will step out. So who's in your boat?